Norwich, London, Nottingham, Oxford, Northampton, Glasgow, Guildford, Leeds, Salford, Cardiff. We're coming your way in 2023. And if you would like to join us and be there and watch High Performance Live, our brand new theatre show, then just go to thehighperformancepodcast.com to get tickets. They're selling fast, so move now. Thehighperformancepodcast.com and we'll see you live in 2023. I'm Jake Humphrey. This is High Performance, our conversation for you every week. This podcast reminds you that it's within your ambition, your purpose, your story. It's all there. We help unlock it by turning the lived experiences of the planet's highest performers into your life lessons. So right now, allow myself and Professor Damien Hughes to speak to three of the biggest sports stars in English football so they can be your teacher. Today, this awaits you. I remember coming on at Old Trafford and getting booed by my by the own, my own fans, and um, it was probably a little bit of that between Liverpool and Man United, like that kind of rivalry. But that was obviously crept into the stands. So my mum and dad and sister in the crowd and the whole England, the whole stand and the whole the whole stadium are, are booing me because of you know maybe a little campaign sort of against me mm. to not be in England squad. Let's be honest, right? I'm I'm. 24 year old kid right I'm getting booed by my own fans and I'm thinking about my mum as I'm coming on to play for England I never enjoyed the games I enjoy training I, I, like, I like training and stuff I love training every day but I've never come out of a squad and go I absolutely love that camp because there was things that weren't, weren't good about the camp and there was the game where like I say we never had a game where I went you know what we are uh, we're, a, we're a problem for everyone play anyone we could beat anyone didn't feel like that Premier League at that time was war. It was two, like four, five really, really good teams, and at the core of that was were, were English players, and I, and I feel that like it was detrimental to the to the England team how competitive the Premier League was. When we get on that plane to leave Qatar with the trophy or without a trophy, you make sure that you have no regrets. You you live it from now until then. So when you're 15 years down the line working in media, you know, we can all pat you on the back as legends. You know what? This is a cool and rare opportunity to get three of the Lions together. From that era where we were so excited about English football and so many of us believed that these were the guys to do what hasn't been done since 1966 and to bring a major trophy back home to England, we thought they were going to bring football home. However, it didn't happen. And over the next hour or so, you're going to hear the truth, the unfiltered truth about why it didn't happen, what they learned, what could have been different and why they now believe things are different for this England team. You know, the cool thing about this episode was getting the three guys together so they could bounce off each other, so they could share their learnings, so they could learn from each other. It was a really unique and different episode, actually, of the High Performance Podcast. But I think it's one with loads of learning. I think it's one that you're really going to enjoy in partnership with BT Sport. This is Joe Cole, Rio Ferdinand and Peter Crouch on the High Performance Podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. First of all, welcome to High Performance. We want to have a conversation that the current England team or the current England squad could learn from from three men who have done so much for their country and represented England with um, with great credit. When I talk about playing for England, first of all, I'd love to hear from all three of you about the emotion that that brings up. What's the first thing you think about when I talk about your England careers? I don't know. For me personally, I was, I just thought I am one of the best players in the country now. Because you never really think about that when you're on your way up and you're on a journey to, to get to the pinnacle, which was playing for your country. I, I was growing up at West Ham at the academy there. Joe was just underneath. And it's like, that's an achievement to get in the West Ham first team and then you're setting new targets. And it's always like, England's the one though. Like, because at, at that point, you're not thinking about winning. It's just getting into the first team, becoming a pro. And then if you can get into the England team and set your new goals and achieve that. And when that call comes, or the facts that I got, it was just like, first you want to tell your mum. We spoke about this the other day, mm. didn't we? You, you tell your mum, go home and tell your mates on your estate. And then you, you do settle into your, your bed or your sofa at some point on that day and go, right, I am actually one of the best in this, in the world, in, in this country. Like, Yeah, I, I've got to take, take that on. I remember... South Africa World Cup uh, 2010 I was on the golf course and I remember getting a call from Franco Baldini saying that um, you're going to the World Cup and I've got the call and then he said by the way you're going to be number nine right so then obviously straight away the first person I call is my dad always I call my dad and I say dad um Going to the World Cup and I'm wearing number nine, and, he got, and then obviously like he put it in perspective for me because I thought you know great man to the World yeah. Cup that was all I thought about. Then he thought actually he broke it down for me and said, think about how many boys and girls like play football in England or English who dream of playing for England. Think of how many people make it as a professional footballer. Think of how many people get the chance to play for England. Then think of how many people get the chance to play for England in a World Cup. And then think about how many people want to wear the number nine. Yeah. And I'm like on that on this particular occasion. It was me. <laughs> and then, like, when he broke it down like that, I started getting goosebumps and thinking, oh, my God, like, wait, uh, is it, this is really prestigious. And then Capello proceeded to play me for three minutes and I was one You must have, knowing you was going up for the next tee shot, you must have been confident. Mate, it was on the England's 18th. number nine. I wasn't answering for, for the first 18. Obviously, you don't answer your phone, do you? I, on the 18th, I went, this, what is this number? And then I thankfully answered it. <laughs> what, was, what was the next shot like, though? No, no, I was done. I was like, I was coming off the green. Oh, and I answered it, yeah. But yeah, a few beers then straight no, away. Without, without doubt. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah similar, like, similar to what the boys said I think playing for England was really important to me because where I like we talked about the other night but where I lived I used to go and watch England I used to get on the tube and go and watch England and the 1990 World Cup was pivotal for me watching Gaza play and do what he did was like right I remember thinking in, in my bedroom watching it like I want to be that I want to be Gaza I want to go to the World Cup and and then so when you get the call to play for England eventually that's all I could think of. I just want to do, if I could just leave something, a little memory, because remember Platt's volley? We, I Belgium, guarantee Belgium. all of us, yeah. after that goal went out, we'd have gone out onto the estate and got the lads to throw the ball up and try and do that volley. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And then the fact, the thought of I've got the opportunity to do something He's like that. He's leading us to his volley against just, Sweden. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you're going? It's, you've just ruined it for me. Like <laughs> so, that's where it meant. We've had all these stories you know, before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, this could have been in any pub in East uh, London. I just <laughs> reeled you all in there. No, but like, just being able to pull that shirt on, 
play for England and and be able to do something like that was amazing. Dream. And how soon though does it go from like the pleasure of play being picked for England to then wanting to win for England? Straight away, really. You get mm. business immediately. You you get there and it's like, do you know what? I was lucky. I I, I was almost used to being around the England squad because I went as like a sixteen year old to the Euros. Um, Euro 98 in England where it was like a magnificent tournament and they got to the semis and I was there for like probably about eight or nine days as a young kid introducing you to the England setup but it's a young kid who they think's got potential so it was like so when I went there it was I, I didn't really have that bedding in period where I'm a bit nervous still but I, I'd been here type thing so I was very much like okay I want to get get in the team now I, I weren't there just happy to be there as a one of the squad players. I was thinking that I, I think I should play. I think I should be in. And it's you you, you look around the dressing room and you're thinking like I, I had like Gareth Southgate, Tony Adams, Sol Campbell, Martin Kieran, and people out there in front of me. But I actually thought I should be playing, and it was weird. And I actually ended up coming on my debut for um, Gareth Southgate. He got injured, and um, and it's weird to say, but you're sitting there delighted in a way. It's bad, but listen, I hope he's all right. But thanks. Hmm. And then you go on and you do your thing and you hope they never see that player again. That's interesting because Glenn done that. Glenn Oda would have been manager bringing the young players in and Terry Venables. And then we didn't do that under Sven, did we? We never, no. never saw a young player. And then all of our era, and then St. George's Park, when you go up there now, they're all close to it. Like, they're all integrated. So it immediately takes out that, that sort of any nerves that these young lads going to play for England would have because they've been around it. They've seen Harry Kane they've seen Raheem Sterling, they know them, they've had a coffee with them. And, you know, so it's, it, I think it's, it's vital for the success going forward. My, my mindset was totally different to these boys, I'll be honest, because uh, Joe and Rio were like 18, 19. I think everyone knew they were going to play for England. You know, like Stephen Gerrard, Wayne Rooney, Michael Owen. You, you, you know that they're on a path to play for England. Like, mine was different. You know, I went roundabout. I wasn't ready for the Premier League till I was 23. Um, you know, I played in it, but I wasn't ready for it. So when I got in the England squad, it was the it was the back end of a season and it was like uh, the tour of America. A lot of people dropped out, you know, but I thought this is my chance. Yeah. <laughs> As you're an experienced international, that's your right, you know, but for me, I thought this is my chance. Mm. There's two games and my mindset was, I've got to play both of them so I'm not a one-cat wonder. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and that was genuinely yeah. because I thought, you know, there's was way... Was a fear, was it? A proper no, fear? Of course yeah. it was. I don't want to be that one person who gets one cap, you know. Um, and I got injured for the first game and my debut was in the second game in USA and I, I, I did quite well um, but then obviously my next I got called up to the next one and thankfully you know my England career sort of progressed but I looked at it like Rio's talking about you know ultra confidence that he should be playing every single game mine was I know I'm not better than Wayne Rooney or Michael Owen I'm happy with that but I, my goal was to be the best of the rest you know they both were quite injury prone and I knew that if I was just behind them at everybody so I'm talking you know Jermaine Defoe um, Carlton Gold Carl got in there for a few Dean Ashton got in there um, Darren Bent so you're know, saying you're, these, you're, so you're players, saying you're better than them I'm saying my goal was to be better than you was better than what, you say, is what you're saying what I'm saying is <laughs> <laughs> I want to make sure that I'm the, I'm the next best basically yeah, yeah. yeah so that was my mindset so what I love about this is that all three of you, when I say the moment you get called up for England, like your eyes light up. I remember having a conversation on, uh, on BT with Rio and Frank and Stephen. And I remember Stephen saying something really interesting. He said, playing for England was hard. It wasn't enjoyable. And then I speak to Coutinho, who goes away with Brazil, and they love it. 
And we never had that with England. So I think the, the natural progression for this conversation is you go from, oh my goodness, I'm going to play for my country. And you first, at the age of six, kicking a football dreamed of that moment. Why are you all now sitting here having had brilliant England careers, but you never lifted a trophy for England? What wasn't right in your era? I think one of the biggest things was the media. We never had a relationship with the media, and that's where you have to say Gareth Southgate's done a, what did a remarkable that, why, why job. Why was that a problem? Every single manager I played for had a problem with it, issues with the, with the media. They were leaking stories about it, certain players who were misbehaving, probably, definitely. Um, but also, it just felt like it was them against us. It wasn't like we're going to the World Cup or the Euros together. Whereas the last couple of tournaments, it's felt like the media have gone and said, you know what, we're in this together, guys. And he, he's created that. Gareth Southgate and that squad have created that. And talking to Stevie, I, I remember we come on a coach after a game away somewhere and we played and we didn't play particularly well, none of us. And we're sitting there, I think we, I don't know if we got beat or whatever, but he come on the bus and I remember him getting up, putting his bag down, sitting down and went, that'll probably be out of four in the paper tomorrow. Like, but that, that type of comment was like, that's one of the first things on your mind as an England player then, it's not conducive to a good working environment to be the best, to be elite, to be a winning team because you're worried about the reaction of the media who are so powerful at that time, especially in our country. Bearing in mind, there was no social media then. So w what they said was the gospel. It wasn't like you can say stuff now in the media and these papers can write stuff or people can say stuff. Pundits like ourselves can speak. Players have a voice now and a platform to go, no, that ain't right. Or I don't agree with that. So, and I don't know, we, we weren't good enough really, was we? Yeah, I do think there's an element of it was uh, the, the, the competitiveness of the Premier League. I think if I look at like Rio, Bex, Gary Neville, Skulls, you know, you've got you know, JT, Lamps, Joe, Stevie, Cara, like that, at that Premier League at that time was war. It was two, like four or five really, really good teams. And at the core of that was, were, were English players. And I, and I feel that like, it was detrimental to the to the England team how competitive the Premier League was and how much you wanted to get one over on on did those you, did you, teams. I, I, I felt that, but I've never heard it from someone. Did you feel that when you was in the squad? Yeah, yeah, I think you could see it. Like for me, I was quite new to it, and um, I think certainly the Manchester Liverpool thing is a thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> Having played for as soon Liverpool, as you signed there, you was an enemy. You were exactly right. So Alex Ferguson would that would put that in your head. Mm. The same as you know anyone from Liverpool, you know, and even the regional thing. No matter about the the the, the team, the teams um, how successful they are, but uh, as places, you know, it's just a thing. And I think it's less, far less fractured just now you know that they look like they all get on they all like like they're not at war every saturday you know remember those games that we played in the champions league those that was all out like intent you know, intense mentally games. exhausting intense yeah. and the two managers you know were rivals everyone was rivals and then you meet up for england like how are you gonna leave that at the door and then be a team yeah to be fair like i i, I listen to what the boys say but i, I think it's more from a pragmatic i just think tactically we, we we we'd fallen behind you know and you have to remember Glenn, you know, then, then Kevin Keegan come in and he didn't, he went a bit old school, Kevin. And then we went on to Sven. Sven was doing the stuff, 4-4-2. Rigid. Rigid stuff that I was doing at 14. At 14, I had a, said, this ain't right. You know, I'm, I watch Italian football, you know, when they're, they're playing in triangles, they're playing out from the back, players are taking responsibility. And we'd go, I'd go away with England from the age of under 15s, uh, right the way through every level. And we'd, wouldn't have control of the games, but I know we'd have better players 
technically, physically, like mentally, like the, all of the England team, all them names you listed, Rio, John, Frank, Stevie, Rooney, elite players. No doubt. I've played with the best players in the world. We all have like been fortunate enough to do that. And they're as good as them, you know, but tactically, I just think it was a case where we was going the wrong way down a road of how we believe football should be played so far. And we'd all been brought up in that sort of system. So when it comes to international football, it was we wasn't set up to win international football. We could win a game off of brilliance of, a, of an England player. You know, whether it be a, a Beckham free kick, Stevie scoring a wonder goal, whatever. But I just think the system in place was fragile. It wasn't... If I asked you, did, did you ever play in an easy England game? Where you come off and you went, that was like no. the easiest game. Like you didn't even mm. get a sweat on. Mm. For our clubs, you could name loads of games. You probably forgot more than yeah. you'd remember how many easy games you had. Mm. With England, it was never easy. I always used to think this is graft. Go to like Moldova and come mm. off sweating, thinking, Jesus, we oh, got through that one. Why? Because that- tactically, we were we were we were so poor. Like we were so rich. I remember what Capello's- was our patterns of play. Do you remember? Do you, uh, no, no one ever there sat me no down and gone, right, when you get the ball, you need to have this, this, this option. When the goalie gets the ball, you need to be here. When Rio gets the ball, you can be here or here. And, and you know, like you see with players now, there's clear patterns. It's like standard for even the poor teams. You can see what they're trying to do. With us, I don't know what we were trying we to do. We relied on individuals. You look at the big games you- we won, like Crouchy scored the goals in the, in the, in the, the World Cup. It's like individual brilliance, mm. isn't it? It's, it's just because Crouchy's there and knows where to be instinctively. It ain't like, oh, we've, we've worked to get in that position to then play. Mm. It was just like, get it there and then someone will be there to finish it off. Michael Owen in the World Cup. Did you ever feel you could go and challenge tactics or discuss them in more detail with the coaches? No. no well, F- Fabio Capello, no. Mm. I remember he screamed at Theo Walcott that first session. Do you remember? Mm. Theo Walcott turned like a ghost and <laughs> <while I> recovered. Because <laughs> he said before the session, he's like, he played right wing. He said, I don't want you to run inside. We was in Australia, Austria before South Africa. Mm. He said, I don't want my wingers to come inside. Stay wide. Stay wide. He really went on about mm. it. Drummed that point home and the first whistle, the first play of the game, <laughs> Theo's run inside and he stopped the session screamed, going nuts. Mm. I remember Theo getting on the coach after going, oh, wow. Yeah. <sighs> so yeah. scared. Like. What does that do then to the rest of the players who who are established internationals who should be able to share their yeah, thoughts see, or their views. Culture weren't like that. Nah, like again, we, 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 the boys are right in a the sense. There was a disjointedness between Liverpool, Manchester United and Chelsea players and Crouchy's right. There was massive rivalries that don't exist now. That was, but I really think it was the tactical side of things. And if you go on to Capello, who, by the way, has been a genius and what a career he's had. You know, you can't disregard what he's done. But my problem with Capello... When I was fit, he played me, apart from at the World Cup, like went to 2010. But the way that he didn't live in England, I thought, which, if you're an England manager, you've got to be, you've got to lead like Gareth does. He, he, you know, he's a, he's a, he's more, he's a figure, isn't he? He talks well. He, he, he's part of St George's Park. You know, like I said, I just think there wasn't no care and attention. He, he, he'd turn up when it was close to an England game. And then what done me was at the World Cup when they was all watching Italy like hollering and hooting when they scored. Like, I just think that the foresight of, of that wasn't great. It, it was not good optics. It bothered you? It bothered me yeah. as an Englishman, you know, and I just think there's, there's a reason why it must have bothered some people above because since then we've not gone for a, a foreign manager. I firmly believe, that, especially now in the current climate where you could have the ability to develop coaches 
there was a scarcity of good managers and coaches to take the job when Fabio and Sven got the job that we didn't have enough. But nowadays, there's no excuse to not produce managers and coaches to come like Gareth Southgate. The next run of them will be Potter, Eddie Howe, Frank, Stevie, Scotty Parker. If you, you know, look at them now, though, you, you obviously do a bit of coaching and stuff. Yeah. But you see the coaches on the way they coach now. And you go to watch any kind of academy games, the football is replicating what you've seen in the Premier League with yeah. Man City type football and, and what Potter's produced at Brighton, etc. It's all fluid through the lines, playing through the, it's There's no long ball game really now. But you can see how much they've worked on that in, yeah. in training. Yeah. And I know look, like it's slightly diff- different when you've got um, a group for maybe a week or 10 days. It's not you can't work on it every single day, but I don't remember working on, on much. Do you? Set pieces. Set pieces and, and defending. But uh, if you if you took England, if you, if you can get back in a time machine and take an England team from 2002 and think you've got all these great players, you think, and what's been the problem handling the ball in tournaments at important times? So you, you ain't got to tell Rio Ferdinand, John Terry, how to defend, Ashley Cole, Gary Neville. Like they, they, they can play in the back four. So I think the time would have been better off used to implementing patterns of play how to hold mm. on to the ball encouraging players I, and I think we're still not good at this where we don't get the, the technical players we've still to this day and I love Gareth and what he's done is amazing and, and everything but technical players who can handle the ball like there's still a mistrust that comes from historically mm. like you know we talk players like Madison Grealish Mount Foden they can't all play, but at least two of them should be on the pitch at all times for England, possibly three. Handling the ball. I think this thing, that, that's a good point in terms of handling the ball, but it's also our generation for definite was never brought up and this generation's a bit better, but still nowhere near what Spain and Italy and France are like. We were ne- always taught, do not pass the ball to a man with someone marking him. Mm. Well, if you're gonna if you're gonna win, you need to pass the ball to people that are marked to be able to take that man mm. out of the game. Sometimes, do you know what I mean? And if you have got someone under a bit of pressure, give it to him. Be confident to give it to him. Whereas, mm. that's where you end up going away from what your principles are and your mm. values are as a team because you're not confident and you, you remember you're not you're told don't give it to him. It's risk to pass it into someone who's marked. And so, I think there's a lot of things reasons why we didn't win. I think definitely I agree with the guys. I think the the, the, the tactics of our team and the generation was was bad for the players we had. Um, but I do feel that the environment wasn't the right environment to create a winning team. So can I ask you around that then? Because when we interviewed Gareth, he spoke to us around, he tried to break down this club versus country and make it club and country. And one of the ways he'd done it was by getting players to tell a little bit of their own story so you can Mm. see more what you have in common rather than what divides you, like club Mm. loyalties. So was anything ever done like that in terms of breaking down barriers or have, you know, you're in hotels where you've got all this time was anything ever done where people can tell a little few, bit of their few background? drinks in the bar after games that was it and that that was to be fair that was the tool used mainly to you know break down barriers social lubricant have a little drink it was good though wasn't it? it was good <laughs> <laughs> but there was nothing done like like you said that that is gareth southgate a proud englishman who clearly loves the job who's not leaving a stone unturned in doing everything to try and change the culture of what's gone on before and trying to improve on on what's needed. and these little details they can help. Yeah, but I I also think it's the to, I think the England national team has benefited from um a, I don't want to say less competitive Premier League but a less aggressive Premier League if you like I I think we all remember you know 
Roy Keane in the tunnel, you know, mm. like, would that happen now? You know, little things like that. I'm talking about, like, horrific like, tackles flying in. You know, we I don't, almost had a fight. I don't, yeah, we've, we've, we've had fights, you know, we, we, we were mates with England, but we were, you know, <laughs> things would go on on the it, pitch. It, it, I, I'd I, win that fight. I don't, well, really, I would, you know. Yeah, I just feel like it's, I definitely think that the Premier League is a different place now than what it was. I don't think we get, I think we can all agree on that. It's yeah. not, you know, I think it's an amazing product. It's a beautiful, we all love watching it, but it's not what it was in those days. It doesn't have the subplots that it was in our time. You knew that you was, I don't know, you, that Sanso's playing Sanso. There would be some sort of subplot, whether it's the two managers at yeah. it, or there'll be a player you know doesn't like that player, and there'll be like an aggressive a spark that could just change the whole dynamics of the game. Mm. It doesn't really seem like, and I think the reason why that isn't the same now is because one, the personalities and characters are different and their upbringings have been different. But also with social media, you're now, you're now without ever meeting someone, you're a mate. So all of these players like each other's pictures, which is, is the culture today. They like each other's pictures and chat on, on, the, on Instagram, never met each other. So when they do see each other in England, it's like, what's happening? You're out here. Cause they've got a common place where they've been connecting. Whereas if I, I, I didn't see Karachi home and away, in the games and then I'd see him in England I wouldn't chat to him ever again really I might see him on a night out but he wouldn't remember he'd be too drunk but why, <laughs> <laughs> why did none of you and you know there were other big leaders in the England team at mm -hmm. the time why did nobody see this and change this we'll, we'll go back to 2010 and you know we talk about why didn't anyone go to the manager JT would try <laughs> We, we try, tried to speak to the manager and he, he was the captain along with Rio at that time I can't remember but like the big players and he just got absolute shut down right so a, a JT then come out and was and he did an interview before one of the World Cups and he was like well you know I can't even remember the, 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 he was like we're going to have a chat with the manager about something in the meeting the press must have asked the question the results were bad and then and then we had this meeting arranged with Capello where it was going to be the players and the manager and we was going to have a conversation about what we can do. And we turned up and then he just went, go to dinner. And that was it. And I'm like, probably could have been handled a bit better in terms of how you ask about it. But if you, we could have had a really forthright conversation just before a World Cup and we could have got aired things, you know. There were, I think the culture was different, though. The culture was different because that's like it was almost like these managers then probably saw it more like you're questioning my the way I rule. But this other team nations and were able to win tournaments and competitions. Like they mm. were doing something that mm. England weren't. Like it, it was chalk and cheese, wasn't it? We had Sven, which was so relaxed, and then and yeah. then we were get it was getting labelled like player power. Players are running the show, yeah. you know, and and so they went so far the other way. So you weren't allowed to speak. To Fabio Capello because he he ruled it with an iron fist. It was like we, it was like we had this that didn't work, so we're going to have this now, and we were just told this is how we do it until things started going badly at a World Cup, and all the you know kind of things that were banned or stopped were were allowed to. We, he tried to relax us because he realised he, he sort of panicked during mid tournament that we weren't performing. And Sven was. Bringing sh like shirts to get signed by Bex, though, only remember. You're the England manager. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, getting shirts like Bex to mm. sign shirts. Like I was almost like. And what was your perception of that when you seeing a manager do that? I just turned away in disgust. I was like, whoa, like because mm. just the England manager's like he's the he's the man, isn't it? He's like your manager is like you look at him as if he's mm. he's the rules of roost. He directs where we're going. He's like looks at no man in this team with like admiration 
or would show that oh bit of a star bit of an icon there it just mm. felt like that was the i was like wow it's just it was mad as well it's it is weird this but bex is an absolute superstar and we're all happy and that's fine that's not a problem but it's mad we used to laugh at it as a team because i remember we got off the coach once and bex got off the coach and all of our security just went with bex and the whole team is standing there and, like that, and there's like fans coming from all over the gaff and they go like, we're all getting marauded by all these fans pictures here there and you look around and Bex is just it weren't his fault <laughs> just the security was like he's the he's the superstar got to look hard. but like it was it, isn't it for me I didn't give a, a, a hell about anything like that they weren't don't bother me but when you look at it afterwards with hindsight and you think okay there must have been some people but you subconsciously, together, right in the same yeah, hotel, but subconsciously so be... some people might go flipping oh yeah. I was one more for him one for us it's like, and then it just, that, that, that's just a little tweak in the ambience then and the environment and the culture that it changes. It could be a problem for, as, and a contribute to why you didn't become successful. Not the, the be all and end all, but if you know what I mean. So that World Cup in 2010 that you're describing it, like if you take Spain as an example mm-hmm. at the time when Mourinho and Barcelona, Mourinho's Madrid and Barcelona yeah. were at loggerheads and there's that story that um, the, the goalkeeper Casillas and Xavi had just, connected on a private phone call because mm. they'd gone back through the Franks and they yeah. agreed to stop the enmity to bring the squad mm. together for the World Cup. Yeah. Did any of the players ever get together privately if you've not got the manager that's encouraging it? Did any of you reach out and try and build I, these bonds? I didn't, but like I said, I, I, could, I could sense now looking back that the things, but because of my character, I didn't, I was always a bit of a floater anyway, I could go and mix, mingle with anyone, like I knew Rio very well, I knew Michael Carrick, he was my roommate for four years at West Ham, so um, yes, and I didn't feel like, I wasn't like one of the main, I wasn't in the leadership group, like one of the main people, so I wasn't really, I'm going to go, if I'd have started a group chat, go like, that's what I go, what's Coley doing? (laughs) Come on mate, I feel like I'm in that boat as well. (laughs) <laughs> Made a laugh me out of the room, uh, but I just I didn't, yeah I went along with whatever I went Can't to. Be we honest, just I just to be there. <laughs> Maybe you just thought this was what playing for England was like. Yeah. Almost every former England yeah. player that I now work with on the telly says, "Oh, playing for England was like scary. I was rigid. I was tight. I was anxious about the reaction yeah. to the media. That, like, that's, I was that's never true. free. Is that true? I think so. For me, it was, yeah, it was until I started scoring. I always felt like I had to prove I, I had to." I had to score in every game just to stay in there because I didn't fit the profile of an England player. I didn't look like an England player. You know, I was different to everything else. So I uh, I felt like, yeah, and I felt there was, I think you could feel it. Even when, I remember starting the first game of the World Cup, like 2006, mm. and in the dressing room beforehand, like players were doing things that they'd never done before. You know, like I did, I definitely felt that there was yeah. a, there was a nervousness. What sort of thing? You just notice things around like, and I'm talking smallest details, like Rio was saying, like the smallest little things you think, we'd have a huddle, right? Before, we went out never done that before yeah like, why, I know it's a big game but like we've never done that before so why are we doing that now just sm- tiny little things do you remember everyone's looking at each other like that. yeah it was like <laughs> why are we in a huddle like just little things like that like before you go out and play Paraguay in the, in the opening game yeah. and like you just think that's, that's nervousness you know like, and I, I don't know it's just it breeds you know, and, and you can feel it and but it shows you there was no real leadership from the top from the manager then because I think the managers drive it I think all the clubs that I played at, the manager drove the way the team carried himself and they, they were the reflection of the manager. And the England team, we didn't have real, a real identity under Sven. 
and and under Capello, it was it was it was just your identity was all wrong because of the person who was in charge, and you reflected that person. With, with Sven, we were quite a nervous team at times. Do you know what I mean? We were we were uh, we were placid in everything we'd done, passive in the way that we played. We just relied on the individuals to come in and produce a mm. performance or a moment. We got to the World Cup because of Bex against Greece. If Bex doesn't play, we don't go. It's just an individual's performance who got us there. It's crazy, but that's just how, that's how we were. So it shows you that the functionality of the whole team was wrong. So if you look back now then, what do sorry, you think? Sorry, and just to go back God, to the point sorry. about Xavi and, and um, Casillas, I respect that because that's a maturity to address, see it and then address it. I think we were too club dominant. We, it's like almost thinking we're going to go back to our clubs. What's the gaffer going to say? What's the fans going to say? Because they didn't, our, our fans didn't, they did, they'd, they'd, they'd say, bomb the England team and come play for United. That's the way it was back then. That's and what Alex Ferguson encouraged as well, yeah. right? So the same as, as with most of the club managers, I think. Yeah. They don't care about your national oh. team, do they? There's yeah. no, absolutely no care given yeah. at all it, towards it, that. In the same sense, though, the Spanish were ahead of their time tactically as well. So even like they, they won the World Cup probably despite of the, in spite of the fact that they probably weren't and also, Xavi and Casillas' maturity coming together. So they had the tactical nous, they had the quality players, and then they had the get togetherness, and that's why they won three tournaments. So it's like, we're trying to find the, the reason why England didn't win, and there's probably multiple reasons. And we always have to say, there maybe, maybe we wasn't good enough yeah. as well, individually. Look, look at some of the teams there. Do you know what I mean? At that yeah. time, Brazil. Brazil. You know, like, yeah. some of the teams there, France. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we Spain, have, we have Germany. To, yeah, we have to be proper teams. But like, it's, it's hard for the ego. And we might say, well, maybe we just wasn't good enough as well. So all of these things we discussed uh, have all probably played a small part of it. So Gareth Southgate's job is to make sure he can't do nothing about the quality of players. I think we've got the quality of players, but he can put a system in place, the tactical system. He can get the environment right and he can set the culture right, so that when they like, like he has done, when he's had difficult moments at tournaments they can come through their moments. Whereas we, when we had a difficult moment at a tournament, someone got sent off doing something rash or a team just broke us down and we lost our you know, composure because you need to have everything to Name win names. a tournament. <laughs> no, it's, it's your job. <laughs> no, but you know the England team now, uh, I think they're hamstrung by the way that Gareth sets them up is because of his fear of what could happen to the defenders. I don't think he trusts the defenders enough defensively to be able to go, right, go and play. Yeah. I think he, he's he's playing like that with with the reins are still on a lot of the players. When you look look at our, our attacking players that we've got in any generation, they're top players. And you look at other teams; would they be fearful of those players if they were let off the leash? Yes, they would. I think, but because of the fragility at the back, I think that there means that there's a, a cautiousness to the way that Gareth is setting mm. our but team the, up. The best teams we see at the moment, like leave two v two, two v two. You know, yeah. we we let's be honest, we couldn't do, we couldn't do no. that. No, and then you're going to this tournament now. Carl Walker injured, Maguire's injured at the moment or, and out of form. John Stone's injured. They're the first three that you was going to pick probably Gareth mm. Southgate for this World Cup. He hasn't got them. He's uh, to uh, to put out there. So where did we go now? Where do we go? 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, I was going to ask you to pick up on that point you made, Joe, around you need things to go perfectly and yet you know it never does. Mm. So how much planning was ever done on things going wrong, people getting sent off, divisions in a camp, media stuff? How much was that ever discussed? Nothing. Not that I can remember. It's mental as it oh, sounds. Like people will be at home going, what? Like, but it is, that was literally was, we, we knew the system we was going to play. You knew who was going to play. You more or less knew what, the, you know, and we were going to do the same thing through all different stages of the games. And that was it. That's how far. That's why I say tactically, because we never like, changed to suit that's why to an opponent ever. I'm like, are we, <clears throat> never. Like you could have done saying a qualifier when we played one of them games. If we like Rio said we could have played Moldova or Macedonia, and we won the game. Say we won the game three one, and if you'd have actually no, pulled pulled the game apart and gone, hold on a minute, we had. We could have had so much more possession if we'd have had a Michael Carrick in there and we'd have, we'd have allowed Rio Ferdinand to drop into the midfield and then come back. Why don't we work on that for the next camp, the next game when we're playing uh, San Marino at home? We're going to win the game because we can play with nine men and win the game. But if we can just get that part, we'll work for three days on getting that part of the team right. Bang, right, okay, we'll win the game. And there was an improvement in that how we was getting out. You know, and then we'll take that into the next game. And then we'll go right, there's the middle phase of the pitch. But it was none of that. And that's why I hear, the, I hear what the lads are saying about the, 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 you know, that could have been solved easily. But, but if goes, the base. That goes to the point as well. You only enjoy being somewhere with football if you're winning or if you're playing well, at least minimum. Do you know what I mean? You, you could be going where it's the best atmosphere that Gareth Southgate uh, put, put together. The ambience, the environment's perfect, the culture's great, but they're getting beat every game and they don't look like they're ever going to win a game and the, the football's rubbish. No one player will come out of there going, it's a great great squad though, love being here. They'll all hate it. Did so you got to get the balance. enjoy playing for England? Yeah, I did. I, I did. I did. I, 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 I did. But I loved it. I think, like, whenever I played, like I say, I, was, I knew I was sort of like a plan B at times. Yeah. But well, You can still be proud, but, like, actually no, enjoy it. No, I, I like, enjoyed it. I, yeah, no, I, yeah. I, I did. I, I was unbelievably proud. And the pride that I took walking out, and, again, like I say, knowing you're one of the best in your country, mm. um, never left me every time I stepped mm. out for England. Every time I got called up, there was a buzz. Yeah. But... I never enjoyed the games. I enjoyed training. I, I, like, I like training and stuff. I love training every day. But I'd never come out of a squad and go, I absolutely love that camp. Mm. Because there were things that weren't, weren't good about the camp. And there was the game where, like I say, we never had a game where I went, you know what? We are uh, we're, we're a problem for everyone. Play anyone, we could beat anyone. Didn't feel like that. Yeah. yeah, no. For for me, I was just selfish in in, in many ways. I just uh, because I just thought I'm playing for England, right? And I just felt I'm playing with all these great players. And every time I pulled on an English shirt, I felt I was going to score. I felt like I was invincible playing. They couldn't for defend you, country, like, could honestly. Yeah. International football and Champions League football. I'd prefer to play that than I'd play in the Premier League. Yeah, like I just felt that they me couldn't too. handle me, and I felt like I really? was. I'd go into mm. games knowing I was going to score. I'd Beckham on the right. I've got Joe Cole on the left. I've got Stevie behind me, Frank behind me. You know. Like, 
I felt invincible, literally. And I'm talking purely from a selfish point of view. Like, I'm not looking at the bigger picture. I'm thinking about me scoring, playing for England. And every time I went to an England game, I felt like it, I was going to score. What, what um, defenders did you play against? Who you thought, wow, these are like superstar defenders who I thought are top, top players that you went and played at international or Champions League level and thought, hold on a minute, I've just torn you apart. Mate, honestly, like... It sounds stupid, but no, I don't even know if I should go say it. Go go I, know, I know the answer. I know the answer. That's why I've asked. No, no. <laughs> you know, I said this on. The, I said this the other day. I'd prefer to play against Nesta, right, yeah. than Gary Cale, right? right yeah. Which is, which is, in, but for my qualities, you know, and what my qualities are, I, I feel like I could, I could, I could, I could, I would dominate him. Yeah, yeah. And that sounds ridiculous. I know it does, but I just felt like from my colleagues, they hadn't, they never saw anything like me <laughs> in Europe, you know? And, and, and that's how I used that to my advantage. Yeah, yeah. There's something really interesting, I think, that's come out of this conversation, which is that, you know, Peter felt almost lucky, right, to be playing for England. Mm. And you've been very honest about that. Whereas, you know, you've got like a Rolls-Royce footballer, which what you were referred to as, who almost expected to play for England because you were at the absolute top of your game. Yet for Peter, there was freedom playing for England. For you, there was restriction playing for England. And I think that comes down to expectation. So I would love to know from the three of you what this tag of golden generation did or didn't do for all of you. The golden generation, the burden was probably on Rio more, John. I think I was on the cusp of that. I played 56 times, but if I went and done something, scored a goal or, or made a goal and assisted it, it was everyone pat me on the back, but it wasn't expected of me. Wayne Rooney, the, the, the spine of the team, bore the brunt of that. Mm. You know? But it, it, in the Premier League, these boys were, were it was super hu human levels. You know, It was yeah. like Rio and JT, like Lamps and Stevie, mm. uh, Rooney, Owen. Mm. You know, what they did, that spine in the, in the Premier League was so unbelievable that everyone just assumed that that would happen for England mm. and they'd all be the same at and doing it yeah. and, and, and that's hard it was hard to replicate I grew up watching John Barnes and Chris Waddle for England two of the best most talented players of their generation booed for England yeah. yeah told they shouldn't be playing so when I got into the England team and we were labelled the golden generation it wasn't our fault it just was a, it was label, we were labelled it it was almost like well I've seen this before I've heard this before I've seen big talents before me better players than me booed and, and told they shouldn't play for England so I can't moan about it but I didn't find it a huge burden it was just main, mainly in press conferences when people would talk about it it would come up I'd never thought about it outside of that um, but I think some people dealt with it different some people felt that pressure a bit more um, probably more attacking players as well because there's an expectancy you've got to go and produce something a lot of defenders are reacting to people's movements and, and strikers whereas as a, an attacking player you've got to go out there and score and if you don't you're meant to be the golden generation so um, it's difficult for them I'm sure more than myself so knowing everything you know um, having pulled on the shirt for your country so many times as we approach another World Cup what is the message you would like to put out there not just to the England manager and his staff and the players but also to the public and also to the media about what needs to be done to release the shackles to release the pressure to allow expression and freedom at an international level because I think until we can get to that point then it's always going to be hard for the players I think they're doing it fantastically well I think we're so quick to criticise this England team that have got to a semi-final to, to, to a final um, of major tournaments well, maybe that's what we should stop doing then I think we should celebrate them I really do I, I, I feel like there is um, 
you know, a lot of stick for a manager that has done incredibly well. Like something mm. that we couldn't achieve. We couldn't, we couldn't get to a final. Um, and yeah, I, th I think there are certain things that we're going to criticize, but he's England manager. That's always going to be the case. Mm. Some of the pressure situations, you see, you know, Harry Kane's penalties or, um, you know, just defending or getting into that situation where they, 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 they get across the line in the final. We were a whisker away, a penalty away from winning it. Mm. You know, let's not forget how far we've come under Gareth Southgate. And I think that also goes back to the FA, like how they've started developing players. Like mm. our, some of our young players now are the hottest talent Keep around. You know, yeah. like but German teams, but I mean, they're sniffing around our young players at under 17 level, under 16 mm. level, under 21 level, under 18 level. Like we've come a long way. Mm. You know, we used to, Spain, we looked at Spain's model. We were like, you know, this is the players we want to produce. We're producing naturally gifted footballers now. And I think, you know, we should celebrate that. I think there's probably as many, if not more, scouts at England games in the youth system than like places like Germany, yeah. France, Spain now. And that tells you the development of our, of our youth system has been nothing short of magnificent. So I agree with Crouchy wholeheartedly. You've got to celebrate that. And what Gareth Southgate has created there has been nothing short of phenomenal. It's, it's, it's compared to what we're talking about, what we went through. And if you compare this to what we've been witnessing for the last two tournaments, we should be sitting here and saying, thank God for Gareth Southgate and his team. Mm. We can all sit here and, and, and pick apart his tactics and say that he, Joe don't agree with this, I don't agree with that, Crash, you don't agree with this. That's fine, that's part of football. I think Gareth Southgate would allow that and say, you know what, that's, that's, that's part of the course. But to sit here and say we should get rid of him, after what he's done, I think it's, it's like it's absolutely crazy. And the crazy. players will yeah. see that, by the way. Yeah, yeah. and I think they, that, that then filters to the yeah. players and then the nervousness from maybe from the manager that yeah. might be subconscious, they then yeah. feel that. And then that affects the squad. So as media, as fans, support them. for, yeah. for Remember the feeling that we had in the, around the, the, the stadiums when we were all going to the games in the Euros? Remember the feeling around the country, what that mm -hmm. done people going off school businesses closing for their moments mm. like that's because of that, what that team done we quickly forget far yeah. too often yeah well said I just think we need to remember what these boys have done we need to remember that and, and also I think it's a bit like when you play poker and you're, you know you push your hands in and there's nothing you can do we're, 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 to, we're here now we haven't had a good run in we've got Gareth, Gareth Southgate's done a great job and we're in so if my message to the fans the media anyone who's got anything of a connection with England is that these are your sons, your brothers, the kids on your estates who are going there. They've come through all of the adversity to become England players. They put a body of work together and now they're going to a World Cup, which we which really we know they can win. We know they got a chance, right? So you just need to put everything aside. Like I said, we'll all sit there and have a different system and a different way of playing to Gareth Southgate. It's irrelevant. Gareth's the manager. Now let's all get behind him. All, them players, send them players to Qatar knowing that they've got the whole country behind them, no, the fans, the media, the ex-players, you know. If you send them there with that message, and there's going to be difficult moments, we're not going to go and win a tournament and they're not going to be a hairy moment. We might have to come through some adversity. Someone might get sent off. It might be a penalty shootout. But rest assured that we've got a manager who's ticked every box, who's had sleepless nights because he's a proud Englishman, and he's done everything he can within his power and all the people at St George's Park and the FA and whoever has coached these kids right through, they've all done the what the best they've can and that's all we can ask for and go there and support them and and, and enjoy because one when someone does it it's going to be incredible so Gavin told us that one of the things that he's started doing is bringing former players back mm. in to present shirts to the squad the night before games 
Mm. If you were invited back in and I've you done could, it, and if you could, well, what was the one message then that you delivered to the I squad? I absolutely melted. I don't get nervous, like you know, but I had to go in. I was working doing the game, and Gareth said, "Would you give the shirt to um, Callum Hudson Odoi?" And another lad had made their debut just before the kickoff, like an hour and a half before the kickoff. And I've not been in an England dressing room for like a good seven, eight years. But in my head, I'm thinking that's that's a breeze, like you know, just they're my co- they're my peers, my colleagues play football with them. They're only footballers. I've got in there, the legs started shaking. I started <laughs> stuttering. I went. I was like, I absolutely. I just the lads must have been looking at me, thinking, who is this geezer? Stuttering, like, stuttering. I was all Shows over the what England does to you even but I like today. Well, I like Damien's question. If you were able to give one message to those <laughs> lads, what would what would the message be if you went in there? No fear. Don't have any fear. Like shackles off. One opportunity to go to this World Cup and win it. Go out there and just do your thing. Oh, my message to the team would be: we're gonna. There's gonna be lots of trials and tribulations in this tournament. We don't know what what we're gonna face. You know, we're prepared for everything, but go out there. And the one thing when when we get on that plane to leave Qatar. With the trophy or without a trophy, you make sure that you have no regrets. You, you live it from now until then. So when you're 15 years down the line working in media, you know, we can all pat you on the back as legends. I'll go with that one. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I think, lastly, last thing I think for, for, for the teams, for the players, I think you have to expect criticism. I think far too many players and people that are involved in the game nowadays is almost like, oh, you, you shouldn't say that about me. I 100% agree. If it's personal, it's over the line. It's too far. If we're talking tactics and the way you, your game is and whatnot and about the 90 minutes, you're an open book. You should be sitting there and going, you know what, if I can take anything out of it, great. If I don't agree with it, close the book, move on. Don't take these things personal. Expect it, especially in a tournament. When you're in that bubble, expect the criticism that's going to come and use it as fuel. Yeah, I, I do think sort of like, sorry to hop back on to where we were playing, but I do think some of the, some of the stuff was, was below the belt. Like, like God, some yeah. of the, some of the things were, were nasty. Oh, weren't they? Like, I remember personally going through a lot, a lot. My mum stopped buying the newspapers. Yeah. Like, like what? What's what, uh, Caricatures and things like yeah, that. Yeah, like <laughs> just yeah. complete mick taking, you know, like schoolboy stuff, you know, but like, it affects you, it becomes a thing, you know, and like, I think it was, it was definitely an issue for me. I, 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 I in what way? What do you mean? Uh, well, I went from playing, you know, for Southampton. Then, as soon as you get in the England squad, like things are um, are heightened. Obviously, then I went to Liverpool and I went for a spell of not scoring goals, which was well documented. Uh, and now I just became a figure of fun, like instantly. Right. And then, uh, yeah, and obviously you got to remember my mum and dad are in the crowd, and um, I remember coming on at Old Trafford and getting booed by my by the own, my own fans. And um, it was probably a little bit of that between Liverpool and Man United, like that kind of rivalry. But that was obviously crept into the stands. So my mum and dad and sister in the crowd and the whole England, the whole stand and the whole the whole stadium are, are booing me because of you know maybe a little campaign sort of against me mm. to not be in England squad. Let's be honest, right? I'm I'm a 24 year old kid, right? I'm getting booed by my own fans and I'm thinking about my mum as I'm coming on to play for England. Were you? Yeah, yeah I'm, that was I know the first she, start. Well, she's she's in tears, you know, and I know she I knew she knew it was upset, her, and she didn't come to an England game for the next five six times. Um, but these are all things that sort of going on behind behind the scenes but for me personally I don't show any weakness I'm like yeah. I come on the pitch and I do as well as I can 
and I don't show, I don't say to any of the lads like it wasn't a game you scored Nash against Jamaica. No, was it? it wasn't. I wish it was. <laughs> but uh, but like I say, like that, I had to sort of deal with that, and then I, I'm obviously really proud of myself for, for sort of coming back from that, and then and then showing those people like you know coming through at Liverpool, scored, started to score again, and then mm. staying in the England squad and playing at two World Cups after that. You know, like that for me is a, is a great sense of achievement. Well, there's that famous story that Jack Charlton, <clears throat> when he was first picked for England, he went to Alf Ramsey and said to him, "Like, why have you picked me?" And Jack and Alf Ramsey said, I don't pick the best players, I pick the right players. So what would you describe mm. are the right characteristics then for the right England players to to succeed? Personality. Personality above and what I mean by that, I mean a player who's gonna go and demand the ball, demand to be put on the spot on the spotlight. You know, it could be a centre half, whether he's the one in the last five minutes who who you know when that ball's gonna come in. He's going to put his face in the right area and get the ball. It's going to be a midfielder. When, when we're losing 2-0 against Germany, who's going to come on, demand the ball. When Wembley's turning, you know, it's a centre-forwarder. You know when he goes through one-on-one, he's going, to, he's going to choose the right thing. The players who've got the personality above the ability, and then you need to look at the... You've done that consistently. On that subject, though, do you think that... Um, what, what you're touching on there it's the right it's the right player for that particular game or uh, that particular personality but do you think that you know all the players that we had it, maybe it might not fit the right system oh, but yeah. all those players would just fit in because they're mm. such good players you know do you think we could have perhaps dropped one of those sort of Galacticos if you mm. like in the Premier League and played an Owen Hargroves yeah. you know yeah, or, 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 or dropped one of the forwards or you know do you know what I mean like yeah. we, we felt it felt like and it was a it was a situation that was levelled at us quite a lot yeah. we're just putting all the best players together yes. and going crack yeah, on yeah, that, that definitely happened but I, but I, I do think that and, and you could have affected that by playing a different you, you could have appeased that by playing a different shape yeah, exactly. If we had a diamond in midfield or created a free to create overloads in midfield, you, you might have worked. But I totally agree with you. I don't think the managers were strong enough at the time to go, right, hold on, Bex, you got to sit on the bench. To draw Stevie or, yeah. or Frank, go on, you got to sit on the bench. It just yeah. was almost like, I can't do that. I remember my, when I first started playing, we played Northern Ireland and uh, it was Away. at home. We weren't, we were near, it was nil nil leading up to the game and I was playing really well. And we, but it was Beck, Stevie, Frank, and me in the midfield. I spoke to Kieran Dyer after the game, and it was after after I think I think I scored the, the opening goal after three or four minutes. And Kieran and I, but I was playing well. Do you know you know when you know mm. you're playing well? And I was it was coming, but uh, Kieran said to me, Sven said to me, go and warm up. You're coming on for Joe. Do you know what I mean? But that would that was Sven's mindset. I can't take even though Joe's outperforming them in this game. I can't take mm. them off. And Joe's looking like he's going to open up. In the end, I scored the goal. We went on to win the game, three or four, one. And Kieran sat down. But I would have known that Kieran come up to me and said to me, you was coming off, you know. Do you mm. know what I mean? I was like, Fuck. So like, that's the pressure probably. Well, that's what we were about. Like, yeah. We felt that we had to work like, Extra I have to score in every single game. Yeah. Because I know that if I don't, I'm not coming back. <laughs> I think to go back to your one, the question about what a player needs um, when you're playing for England, I think... The, the ability to to forget mistakes quickly yeah. at that level, yeah. There there can be. I've seen top players come through into the England squad, or players that are terrorising the Premier League at a, a certain point in their career, and they get to the England squad even just in training, forget the game, and they make mm. a mistake and they do not recover. And you think, hold on, 
that's the difference. It's, it's there, up there. Get that right in terms of, okay, if I make a mistake, erase it as quickly as possible and don't let it have a hangover and you move on and you can build your performance off to strength or something like that. And far too many have that hangover. Very good. Mm. Listen, gentlemen, thank you so much for that conversation. Great to reminisce, great to reflect. And yeah. I hope there's something in there that people will hear and it will inform them about how to deal with the modern generation of England players and who knows what will happen in the next few weeks, eh? And if they don't win it, we'll cane them. <laughs> <laughs> Damien, Jake. In some ways, I'm sad to sit and have that conversation for 45 minutes. And, you know, Peter obviously has great fond memories. Joe, um, maybe a bit. But, you know, Rio particularly, for a winner who won so much at club level, like it's sad that that was a relatively negative sort of memory of playing for your country from those guys. Yeah, I think you can divide it up into three things that they spoke about there. Some of it was around the culture and the environment. Some of it was about tactics. And then the third bit was around the mentality of the fear that existed there, you know, and the, what we've seen through our interviews with Gareth and Pippa Grange and Eric Dyer, somebody in that squad, that steps have been taken to remedy all three of those areas that what, the three guys we've just sat with didn't experience. I think in some ways it's great to have this conversation now ahead of another World Cup because I feel that all the things that they had problems with, Gareth and the FA have worked really hard to solve. But in other ways, it blows my mind. I remember watching this England team thinking, these guys are so good, they're going to go and win a tournament. And here they sit, you know, 15, 20 years later saying, well, we didn't really talk about culture. Well, we didn't really work on tactics. Well, we weren't very flexible. Well, certain players were always going to be played. Well, the manager was getting... David Beckham to sign his shirt and that made me think this is ridiculous you know all these things were going on or a lot of things weren't going on and you think you missed winning tournaments with the Paul Scholes and the Stephen Gerrards and the Frank Lampards and the Rios and the Joes and the, and the Crouchies and the Wayne Rooneys like that is a missed generation yep. of potential England success because of culture yeah definitely and I think it proves then that I think that it, this topic is moving into the mainstream to see that talent isn't enough you know, talent sets the floor, but character and environment sets the ceiling for what you can do. And unless that's taken seriously and addressed, as we've seen through Gareth and lots of other national teams doing it, you don't achieve the potential that you undoubtedly have. And I just hope that they respond in the right way. And I just hope the public and the media and you know people like me that sit on the telly and talk about football, I hope we all respond in the right way. When you hear Peter quite emotionally talking about what it actually does to you, when you're getting criticised and we can look at someone like Trent Alexander-Arnold in the modern game and he will be feeling the same emotions that Peter's feeling and then we expect them to play well and then we pillory them more when they don't play well. Well, of course you're not going to play well when that's what's happening to you. Well, how often do we have that conversation, empathy over opinion? It's so easy to have an opinion on why Trent Alexander-Arnold isn't playing well, whereas if we can empathise with a young lad in his early 20s, you know, under intense periods of pressure coping with that and learning how to deal with the spotlight of course he's going to have setbacks and difficulties and I think if we can understand and empathise with that we'll suddenly have a healthier culture for other young talents to thrive thanks mate thanks mate loved it Jack White welcome to the High Performance Podcast is that um, a phrase you ever thought you'd hear? no actually not um, so it's still kind of echoing around my head as you said that so. well look one of the highlights for us is um, 
is speaking to people who listen to this podcast. I'm always fascinated by how people find us in the first place. How did you stumble across high performance? Uh, friend of a friend just just told me about it. Um, and if I'm honest, when I first heard what high performance was, I had a very different impression of what it turned out to be. So I actually tuned in for one reason. And the reason I still tune in now is actually very different. Tell us more. So I initially tuned in. I mean, my early professional career has been pretty intense. Um, so I was working for a big global organization, Microsoft, and I tuned in because I want to climb. And I was like, I want to climb to the top, high performance. This works for me. I'm going to find ways to not hack the system, but continue to grow. And what kept me tuned in is it actually opened my mind to say, high performance is far more than that. High performance is high happiness, as you guys say so often. And that's what keeps me coming back is that I actually use the podcast to reflect listen to other points of view and kind of broaden my mind more so than like, how do I get ahead? How do I climb? So it's been a weird transition, but I'm really glad it happened. So what was the first episode then that you tuned in to listen to? Oh, goodness me, you're testing me, Damien. I think it was probably one of the Formula One boys. I can't remember exactly who it was. Um, But I listened to a podcast called Beyond the Grid and uh, one of them had come up and the guys had said, hey, go listen to High Performance Podcast, you'll like it. So I started in relative comfort zone um, and have moved on. But some of my favorite speakers are far beyond those kind of words. Like one of the most recent ones, a guy called Mo Goddard, who I thought I'd never met, never kind of heard of, but loved everything he talked about his son, everything he talked about, the notions of live for now, live for playing, don't focus on that end goal. Roxy Nafusi, again, amazing in terms of her visualization and manifesting your goals. Guys like Greg Jackson, who again, would never have listened to before, but actually the angle he came at, superhuman. I love the idea of you are my equal. So like I've spread my listening much further afield than I would have done if I hadn't listened to a podcast like this. So obviously the people that are listening to this conversation at the end of one of our episodes have already found high performance, right? So there's a reason why they're already here. I think one of the big challenges for people is how you adopt what you hear on the podcast into what you do in your everyday life. Have you got any advice for people when it comes to that? Yeah, so it's it's interesting because you always ask this, this, um, your interviewees, like, what's high performance mean to you? And I think as I've gone through the different episodes and time spent listening to you both and your various guests, how I've started to apply it is, well, what does high performance mean to me? Like, every single definition that I hear is is super subjective. And I think that's a lot of the core of what high performance is. So for me, it's all around actually defining what that is for me and then applying it to my life. And for me, it's maximum effort and minimal struggle. So whatever area of my life I'm looking at, how am I putting the maximum effort in and how am I turning that into the least resistance possible? So that could be my relationships. It could be within work. It could be socializing. It could be my passion points. How do I set myself up for success in every way possible? And that can be in many different forms, but using some of the skills and areas of focus that your different interviewees talk about has helped me really do that. And what's been the most notable skill that you've taken from one of our guests that you've been able to apply directly to your world? So uh, Greg Hoffman has the amazing three non-negotiables, which I've written on my wall, which are be empathetic, be curious and play to win. And that I apply across everything in my life. And I think it's one of the most succinct ways to describe high performance, but you can apply that to literally any scenario that you're in. And I think it's fantastic. Man, I love these conversations. And what about Jack, right? When there is struggle, because I think one of the things that we try and talk about as well is that life isn't struggle free, particularly things that are worth having they don't come for free. So yes, you can want to give it your all and to do it with the least resistance. But are you also accepting that sometimes there is resistance and that's also okay? Yeah, I think I just learned to enjoy the resistance and recognise it. Like, I think the best lesson again is someone like Mo Goddard. It's like you live to play the game 
and know that playing the game is part of, well, really the main focus of why you're here. So every time I see resistance, it's a learning opportunity. And for me, like I want to push myself into uncomfortable scenarios, enjoy that discomfort and then recognize the growth off the back of it. So really, if anything, I'm looking forward to resistance rather than having to kind of change my perspective on it. I love that. Jack, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And, uh, we wish you the very best of luck with everything. Um, keep spreading the word about high performance, eh? Thanks, guys. Take care. Well, listen, thank you so much for listening to today. Don't forget, if you want to join us for our live theatre show, then you can do so. Just go to thehighperformancepodcast.com for tickets. We're visiting nine cities around the UK in 2023, and we would love to meet you. Thanks so much for growing and sharing this podcast among your community. The last couple of weeks, we've broken all of our records for listens and shares and downloads and views. So please continue to spread the learnings you're taking from high performance. Thanks to the whole team for their hard work on today's episode. Thanks too to BT Sport. But most of all, thanks to you. Remember, it's all there for you. Chase world-class basics and don't get high on your own supply. Remain humble, curious and empathetic. And we'll see you soon.